Good evening, dear friends, and uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Shuttleworth, for the very kind introduction. Acting Principal and Fellows of St. Anne's College, Dr. Devaki Jain, colleagues, students, friends, ladies and gentlemen. I'm deeply honoured to deliver the second Devaki Jain lecture after Gracia Michelle. I've known Devaki as a friend, as a feminist economist and leader, working for economic and social justice and for women's empowerment. It's a very special pleasure for me to deliver this lecture at St. Sands College because of your historical commitment to women's higher education and empowerment. It's a real pleasure to be here, Professor. Devaki designed these lectures to hear from feminist leaders from the developing world and their work in shaping a world fit for all women. So the title of my talk uh, this evening is At the Forefronts of Change, Feminist Leadership Transforming Lives. For me, feminist leadership is individual and collective leadership that addresses and transforms power structures and relationships, norms and practices of discrimination, injustice and violence that destroy women's lives and potential. It is leadership that brings about societal change, transforms the situation of women, empowers them, and provides them with opportunities to live in dignity, freedom, and rights as full human beings. Gender discrimination reduces women's humanity. The inequalities and humiliations are deeply entrenched in structures, in norms, and practices. Every continent has a history of women morally outraged by these injustices and the subordination of women. Many women fought at the front lines to change the terms of living and engaging, transforming their own lives and that of their societies. They included the women in the suffragette movement in Europe and in the US in the late 19th and early 20th century who fought for political voice and the right to vote, to the women who organized for peace and bread against World War I. They include the women who organized to change the working and living conditions for women textile workers, remembered on every International Women's Day on March 8th, to the women who fought for entrance to universities and the right to be educated. I'm asked today to focus on Asia, and Devaki requested that I start with the place of my birth. I was born and grew up in Singapore, in colonial Singapore, if I may say. It was a very different place, not the stable, clean, green, and prosperous country that we know today. It had a poor migrant, mainly Chinese population, brought in as coolie labor by the colonial powers. It had a history of young girls sold for silver, which is the title of the 1958 autobiography of Singaporean author Janet Lim, or given away as Mijai, or bonded girls. In the context of grinding poverty, the alternatives to selling was to abandon newborn infants if they were girls. In my childhood, I still remember many newborn girls left at the doorsteps of convents or in, dustbin, or in rubbish bins to die. 
Polygamy was common, and women and girls were left in vulnerable situations with no legal rights and protection. The situation appalled many women in the country. About 2,000 women formed the Singapore Council of Women in 1952 to provide a united voice for women to start a movement for better protection and legal framework for women and girls, and waging a campaign against polygamy and child marriage. The tenacity of these women, who were social reformers during the struggle for political independence, paid off when the People's Action Party, that's who's still the government, included women's legal rights in the party manifesto in 1959 election and passed the Women's Charter in Singapore in 1961 when they won. The struggle in Singapore was not unique, but rather one of many across Asia, and indeed the emerging post-war colonial world. As the colonial empires disintegrated and new countries were born, many women played an active role in political independence struggles and subsequently contributed to build effective state institutions, working to democratize the state, build its capacity, and strengthen its accountability to all citizens. Because of the discrimination they had faced for so long, women took every opportunity to bring their struggle for justice and equality into every political space that opened up, whether at the local, national, or international level. When women realized that national policies were inadequate to guarantee gender equality, they engaged persistently at the United Nations to hold their governments accountable to international norms and standards. They took advantage of the changed political context and state membership of the United Nations to forge effective global alliances to advance women's human rights including four world conferences on women between 1975 and 1995. Through these alliances, women were able to set global ground rules and secure important international commitments and legal instruments, including the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, or CEDAW, which came into effect in 1979. In addition, Women created new policy agendas and broke the silence on sexual violence, which had been a largely hidden phenomena, regarded as a private matter that did not merit the attention of governments nor of the United Nations system itself. It was only, believe it or not, in 1993 that the UN Declaration on the Elimination of Violence Against Women became the first international human rights instrument to deal specifically with violence against women. Today, the pandemic of violence against women features on the agenda of almost every government, as well as the UN and other multilateral organizations. In almost every country, there are now groups working to revise discriminatory laws, to introduce new legislation, to strengthen implementation, to educate and change mindsets, and to mobilize both men and women in support of gender equality. So where are we now in Asia? However, in spite of the changes that women have succeeded in bringing about, much still remains to be done. In Asia, the region I've been asked to focus on today, the creation of societies founded on equality, justice, and rights is unfinished business. 
Gender inequality still remains a barrier to progress and social stability and deprives the region of its full human potential. Yes, Asia has transformed itself over the last four decades. Rising Asia has lifted more than half its people living in poverty, from 52% in 1990 to only 18% in 2012. It has created rapid growth and expanding educated and technologically savvy middle class of men and women who have taken advantage of new opportunities. It has created people like me. This is a crux of the Asian miracle, the generation of shared prosperity and the reduction of poverty in the shortest period of human history. But the work is incomplete. In many countries and communities, gender inequality remains entrenched even in this era of rapid economic transformation. Yes, in our region as a whole, women are living longer lives and our daughters are better educated with more opportunities. More women are participating in the economy and Asia has the highest, the second highest ratio of employed women of working age in the world at 49%. More women are leaders in the corporate world Many young women are heading their own business and actively involved in the issues of their day, showing both intellectual and creative leadership and leading in many technological as well as social innovations. A handful of countries are narrowing the gender gap in political participation. Asian countries, as the members of the United Nations, have made formal commitments to implement CEDAW and international and regional agreements. Yet. Despite these proud achievements, Asia lags behind on several aspects of gender equality compared to other developing regions. <coughs> Great disparities exist between and within our sub-regions. Women and men may live in the same region or country, but in very different worlds due to growing inequalities in economic assets, power, and status. Whilst many parts of East and Southeast Asia are moving forward, progress is too slow in South Asia. Indeed, ranking on gender e equality indicators developed by UNDP Human Development Report shows many parts of South Asia close to or even lower than Sub-Saharan Africa when it comes to health, adult literacy, economic participation. Poverty has a women's face, not only because of discrimination in earnings, but also due to women's inability to access economic opportunities because of entrenched, entrenched discrimination and practices that restricts women's mobility and threaten their security, limit their employment choices, reduce their inheritance rights and control over assets, including land. In fact, today is the 17th of October, and it is the International Day for the Eradication of Poverty. We can only make poverty history by ending the feminization of poverty. Progress for women in Asia is too slow when it still has the highest male-female sex ratio in the world, with sex-selective abortions and female infanticide, resulting in about 100 million missing women in China and India, despite the two countries' high economic growth over the past decade. Progress is too slow when maternal mortality and other gender-related MDGs, or the Millennium Development Goals, are the hardest to achieve 
in remote and rural communities. There is no progress when girls are still given away in child marriage or as debt payment. When girls like Malala are shot for wanting an education because of the growing extremist forces against women's human rights. When over 1,000 women garment workers lost their lives with the collapse of the Rana Plaza in Bangladesh caused by the corruption of political elites and poor working conditions in the supply chain of the global garment industry. Today, violence against women continues to destroy the lives and talents of still far too many women and girls. According to the Independent Human Rights Commission of Pakistan, there were around 1,100 honor killings of women in 2015 alone by family members in Pakistan, while many more cases go unreported. These ladies and gentlemen are just a few glimpses of how women and girls are still devalued, made vulnerable in society, and the inability of our societies to provide them with basic human security. They are violations of women's basic human rights. They are societal failures, societal failures which take place in every region of our world. Much more must be done and done urgently. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, I join the United Nations. So let me talk to you about one experience of mine in the United Nations. The Charter of the United Nations was written while the world was engulfed in the horrors of the Second World War. Faced with untold sorrow and the potential of human self-destruction, world leaders were determined that never again should our world be destroyed by injustice, hatred and violence. Established in the name of We the Peoples, it entered into force on the 24th of October 1945 with the promise of a just and better world, and I quote, free from want, from fear, and all forms of discrimination for present and future generation. The Nobel laureate, Ralph Bunch, who was closely involved in drafting the charter, wrote, and I quote it, the United Nations exists not merely to preserve the peace, but also to make change, even radical change, possible without violent upheaval." End of quote. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe that the collective power of people to take stewardship of our human future and shape a shared destiny of peace and security, development and human rights is greater now than ever before, and the need to exercise it more compelling. I've worked for almost 30 years in the United Nations, and over the course of these three decades, I've learned time and again the, roof, the truth of Ralph Bond's words. The United Nations has global, of, has global legitimacy and is a purpose-driven organization based on the principles and values of the UN Charter. Because of these principles, the UN has moral authority can, can give voice to the voiceless and defend the defendless. I fully believed in the founding principles of the UN, and this is why I've spent most of my life in its service practicing these principles and leading change whenever there was an opportunity. There is time this evening to share just one example of being at the front lines of change through the United Nations. When I was appointed 
as the executive director of UNIFEM, the United Nations Development Fund for Women in 1994, I was determined to make the world a better place for all women, supporting the progress of member states and their people using the UN principles and values. On the first UN day of this millennium, the 24th of October 2000, a major opportunity arose for me to address the issues that go to the heart of our charter. For the first time, my team and I succeeded in putting the issue of women, peace and security before the Security Council. Since my appointment, UNIFEM had provided assistance to women in conflict-affected countries and supported their participation in peace processes. But the front lines of war had changed. The distinction between a war front and a home front had eroded. Targets could be anywhere, homes, markets, schools, trains, cafes, theatres. And just as the venue of war had become diffused, so had the fighting forces, with state and non-state fighters comprising private militias and criminal gangs. The violence of war affected everyone, but women were targeted in very specific ways, as systems of protection, the rule of law, and the rule of war the rules of war collapsed. We witnessed how rape and other forms of sexual violence were used as weapons of war to destroy communities and traumatize them beyond recovery, to humiliate the men from the other side and to destroy identity in identity conflicts. Mass rape during, during the, the Rwanda genocide in 1994 affected almost 300,000 women. The scale and horror of this, together with that of the mass rape of women in Bosnia and Herzegovina in 1992, shocked the world. I worked at the Security Council for a few full-scale assessment of the impact of armed conflict on women. In conflict after conflict, I met women choked with painful experiences and memories of their own humiliation and those of their loved ones husbands, brothers, daughters, and sons. In response, I demanded that the protection for women and girls in conflict be addressed at the highest level of the United Nations, the Security Council. However, women are not just victims. They are part of the solution, transiting from conflict to peace. Through UNIFEM support for women's peace initiatives, I convinced the Security Council of the importance of supporting women's leadership and agency in peace building and post-conflict reconstruction. When it came to peace making and recovery, I witnessed and my team witnessed and many of our partners witnessed how warlords were invited to the peace table. Mediators frequently perceived peace processes as ceasefires and silencing of guns, often at the expense of long-term peace building. Women and other significant groups were therefore completely excluded from the peace table and from post-conflict decision-making. I argued that peace is more than the absence of violence. Peace-building must mean an inclusive political process, a commitment to human rights in the post-war period, and attempts to deal with issues of justice and reconciliation. Having no women mediators or negotiators doing peace negotiations rendered women's grievances unheard and unanswered. 
This made it particularly difficult for women to re-establish their lives and to weave back the social fabric of community after conflicts have ended, leading to the reoccurrence of conflict and fragility. Also, disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration focus on male combatants, forgetting that there were, uh, there were women and girls in the fighting forces who faced a different set of challenges from their male counterparts. The, ex the exclusion of a gender perspective from peace building and recovery processes therefore weakened the foundation for sustainable peace and security. We saw that approximately half of the conflict-specific items on the Security Council agenda would be considered cases or could be considered cases of conflict relapse. If the goal is to build sustainable peace, it required more diverse inputs from the rest of society. And women have a critical role to play in shaping a fairer, more inclusive future. We fought for the need to move from a male and elite dominated approach to a more inclusive governance and decision making by engaging women in all aspects of conflict resolution, peace building and recovery. The Security Council finally heeded the voices of women and passed the historic landmark resolution known as 1325 on Women, Peace and Security in October of 2000. It marked the beginning of the Women, Peace and Security agenda in the Security Council, and I'm happy to have acted as a technical advisor to the then president of the Security Council, Namibia. UNIFEM was proud to have facilitated the women who organized for peace and security on the ground to dialogue as experts with members of the Security Council for the first time. It represented a long overdue recognition of their accomplishments and challenges. Security Council 1325 consists of four pillars of prevention, of protection, participation, peace building and recovery. It promotes the human rights of women in conflict-affected countries, emphasizing women's rights to inheritance, property and land, health, education and employment in recovery and rebuilding processes. In fact, post-conflict recovery is the opportunity for society to address the root causes of conflict, to change directions and work towards gender equality. Security Council Resolution 1325 became the resolution that inspired substantive and widespread action in the whole UN system, in the security sector of our member states, and among advocates for women's human rights. It is regarded as one of the UN's most transformative and legally binding frameworks that we have created together with women living in conflict-affected countries. But as you know, and many of us know, that resolutions and what was, is agreed to in the multilateral uh, institutions sometimes have great difficulty when it comes to implementation. So I tested the first implementation of 1325 in a very difficult political context. Afghanistan, a conflict-affected country in Asia after the fall of the Taliban. I was in New York at that time. Images and stories of all forms of violence against women dominated our television screens and our media after September 11 terrorist attack in New York in 20, uh, 2001. The suffering and exclusion of Afghan women 
from, from public executions to their complete removal from social, economic and political life provoked international outrage. But for me, the world finally got it. The condition of women in a country is the barometer of peace and security and is associated with better governance and functioning states. And this indeed was the message of Security Council 1325. I was thrilled when the then UN Secretary General Kofi Annan invited me to be part of the delegation to the International Conference on Reconstruction Assistance to Afghanistan in Tokyo in January 2002. <laughs> Ambassador Lakda um, Brahimi had overall authority for the political, human rights, recovery and reconstruction activities of the United Nations in post-Taliban transition of Afghanistan. He was in the midst of solid, solidifying the 2001 bond process that created the current Afghan government. With all the difficulties of bringing stability, self-rule and security to the country that he had to handle, he advised me to postpone the issue of gender equality and women's empowerment to some future date in the hope that it would be easier to handle. He felt that I had not even visited the country and did not fully understand the complexity of the local situation or even what local women really wanted. On my side, with UNIFEM's experience in supporting women in Rwanda, Liberia, Burundi, Kosovo, Guatemala and Timor-Leste, I knew that support to women affected by conflict and in countries undergoing transition could not wait. Ensuring gender equality in Afghans' um, um, uh, policy framework and, and in their legislation is an essential starting point for building the new future. I immediately prepared to visit Afghanistan with my team to identify and work with women on the ground who wanted change. We held intensive consultations with the government and with a wide range of women, from doctors and teachers and lawyers to displaced women and girls in the refugee camps. By the time the first International Women's Day was celebrated in the country on March 8, 2002, the Ministry of Women's Affairs, headed by Minister Sima Sama at that time, and UNIFEM, were able to mobilise over 1,000 Afghan women from seven districts to make their voices and demands heard. In the ruins of a Kabul cinema that was burned down by the Taliban, Chairman Kazai, Ambassador Brahimi and members of the cabinet listened to the aspiration of women from rural and urban areas from all ethnic groups. Their message was united and clear. The women of Afghanistan wanted to help build a government accountable to all Afghans, at peace with itself and with its neighbours. They knew the cause of accumulated conflicts, what it meant to have sons, brothers and husbands who were forced to fight and daughters who were forced to hide, totally excluded from public life. And these women were now the highest stakeholders of peace, stability and development. From that day, SRSG Brahimi became our champion and helped with UNIFEM's work to support 100 women leaders to engage with a 500-member constitutional loyal jilga or the Grand Assembly that, uh, uh, that's called for major decisions in December 2003. Eventually, after very difficult negotiations, women were recognised as equal citizens for the first time in the constitution of Afghanistan. The inclusion of women's 
equal rights in the Constitution was a huge historic victory. However, ladies and gentlemen, societies do not erase discrimination overnight because of a new constitution. The legacy of discrimination remains entrenched, and implementation is still, till today, a very big challenge, and grounds gained can be lost. But equal citizenship for women in the constitution is real progress, and will always be the beacon of hope for women in the country. Our work on rebuilding conflict-affected countries through the empowerment of women using the legitimacy of 1325 continued to deliver results by working with Women Minister Gay Four in Liberia, educating women voters and supporting peer networking, women elected Ellen Johnson Sirleaf as the first woman president of Liberia and of Africa. By supporting women to become elected leaders, Rwanda has the highest percentage of women in parliament in the whole world, with women playing a bigger role to shape the new direction of their conflict-affected countries. These experiences are testimony to the fact that against all odds, people are the most powerful agents of change. And when supported and empowered in the direction envisioned by the UN Charter, can shape their destiny towards a future of greater freedom and dignity. I would like to conclude by several thoughts. Women who practice feminist leadership across time and place shared many common attributes. Their outrage at injustice when society fails women. Their courage to break barriers and entrench discrimination. Their determination to rise and succeed in the fight for legal, social, and economic equality and justice, despite very strong resistance, and their leadership to give voice to the voiceless and mobilize for change in public mindsets, institutions, and practices. They have committed their lives to shaping a world where all daughters, independent of background, could be educated, could have economic power, could have legal rights to fulfill their dreams, to improve the quality of their lives and that of their society. These dedicated and tenacious women are relentless in their pursuit of a world where every girl is wanted, valued and loved, where every life counts. Today, such leadership is more relevant than ever, not only for women, but for all people who face discrimination and a denial of basic human rights. Our world today faces multiple protracted conflicts, such as Syria and the DRC, a breakdown of peace treaties, such as in South Sudan and Burundi, the highest number of displaced people since the end of World War II, the flow of migrants and smuggled people that I don't have to talk to you about, that you see it on your screen every day, and a widespread discrimination against ethnic and religious minority. The challenge of feminist leadership today is to help take stewardship of our human future. To allow the lessons that they have learned and the struggles and their struggles to inform the challenges that we face today so that we have a more inclusive society that leaves no one behind. We must take the lead in saying, never again. 
never again at this time when we need to be able to protect and restore the dignity and humanity of each and every one of us in our human community. Only if we restore this humanity, only will our children inherit a world fit for all, free from want, from fear, and from and from all forms of discrimination. And that is the promise that our forefathers and leaders made. It is still a challenge to implement, but it is the hope that we will carry the torch and that all our children and their children will inherit a world that is safe and that humanity will be restored once again. I thank you.